So in 1970, which all the best stories start with in 1970, uh, our denomination merged with another denomination in Canada that I actually uh, went to when I grew up in Canada. I went to a, a missionary church in the east side and the west side didn't have very many missionary churches, but they had evangelical churches and the, uh, they, uh, there was this large merger that happened and uh, now it's separated again. We let Canada go do its own thing, um, but uh, uh, we let. <laughs> um, Around 1970, 71, we, we made some changes to the way our denomination works. Uh, and those changes, there were three paragraphs that were changed. We have a code book. I know this is, might sound really boring, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean something in a second. Uh, we have this code book called The Discipline, right? And if you're ever looking for a title of a book that people want to read, call it The Discipline, right? And uh, it is all marked up with different paragraphs and everything. And around 1970, they added the word male, uh, to three paragraphs about uh, ordination. And ordination, if you aren't from um, uh, a church background, is where we say, like, this person is seen as having uh, gifts and graces, is the word that we use, uh, as being able to uh, be a pastor or be a missionary or be uh, some kind of a Christian ministry or Christian service. And so then around 1970, they added the word male, uh, which by doing so actually uh, was an exclusionary tactic where they removed the possibility of females being ordained in our denomination. So we, you're, in a, you're in a denomination that won't ordain uh, women. Again, singular, plural, sounds the same. Um, we have other credentials that uh, females are allowed to have. It's called commissioning. Uh, it's not a biblical thing. We invented it. So. Uh, well, I have opinions on why we invented that, but uh, all before me. Uh, now, your pastor is the chair of our conference's board of ministry. What that means is I chair this board, and people come in that want to be pastors, and we examine them. We, they go through personality profiles, background checks, doctrinal exams, and those kinds of things. I also hold the record on that board for making the most people cry. Uh, I'm a bit ashamed of that, but uh, it's more than one. Um, <laughs> I was just asking questions. Um, it's an intense thing, if you can imagine. You prepare this 10-page doctrinal statement, and you sit around with people that have been in ministry longer than you've been alive, and they go, well, we think you're contradicting. Uh, like, that might be heresy. Uh, right? So it was, I had to sit through it, too, and it's a hard, difficult thing. But we, so I chair this board. Uh, that's what your pastor does. And so I chair a part of an organization that has an exclusion that I personally disagree with. Uh, and I think that's important. Uh, I don't think that, uh, therefore, uh, like, I, I still participate. And I think that's important. Uh, also, the way that our system is set up is changes happen in the local church. So the local church creates uh, a movement or asks, uh, it's called a petition that we send in to the general church or the centralized church in order to ask for a change to happen. And so about a month ago, uh, your leadership council, which is the governing an organizational administrative board here, which has chairs and representatives from different boards, created a petition uh, to rewrite those paragraphs uh, to take the word male back out. And we sent it into our denomination. So you all are now seen as rabble-rousers with people that you'll never meet, uh, as if you weren't before. Uh, <laughs> some of you are really excited about that. Some of you are like, this is really boring. Uh, Here's, we need to let you know, because your leadership council has sent that in, 
what's going to happen is it's going to be referred to something called the Commission on the Discipline. It's going to be tabled. They're going to talk about it for years and years and years. But uh, like, I, I don't think we're necessarily going to get to call for a vote and change and blah, 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 and those kinds of things. But uh, your leadership council, I actually shared my opinions with them, and we looked at some scripture and prayed about it, and we decided, well, let's do this, and we want to put the authority back into the hands of the local church uh, and go backwards. And there's lots of argument and discussion about it. I'd love to discuss that with you. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to change your theology, but I can, ex I can explain my theology. Does that make sense? Uh, there's a lot of these kind of issues where, like, if we just talk about it more, we'll be okay. And it's like, well, I've, I've, I've done a lot of work and prayer and, like, research on this, and I think this is my conclusion. And someone else does the same. Uh, like, probably my best friend in ministry disagrees with me, right? And he says, well, you can't show me that in the Bible. And I'm like, well, you can't show me the other side in the Bible, you know, because the Bible tends to be a story and not a textbook, and when we start to treat it like a textbook, everything starts falling apart. And when we treat it like a story, we begin to live in the tension of what it is to follow Jesus in a cultural context. So uh, that's happening. Here's why, that's, uh, here's why I'm leading into this sermon of that. Oh, yeah, so uh, you go to a, you're in a denomination that won't ordain women, but you're in a church that's fighting against that. So both sides of the issue, you have reason to leave your church if that's your do-or-die issue. I hope that's not your do-or-die issue. Also, I have no plans on leaving, so... Um, <laughs> the, uh, here's why that matters. In the year 48, uh, this is way earlier in 1970, maybe 49, maybe the year 50, there was this council in Jerusalem where all the church leaders got together, and they're having a crisis because Christianity began as a movement. Christianity began as a movement within the Jewish faith. But then, all of a sudden, these people that weren't Jews, they used the word Gentiles, these Gentiles, uh, or Greeks, all non-Jews were called Gentiles or Greeks, all of a sudden decided to become Christians. And then the Holy Spirit was like poured out on them and they started demonstrating gifts of the Spirit and like it seemed like God approved of this. Very confusing. And so they had large meetings with the important people and they all got together and they had arguments and church leaders uh, like James, the, the brother of Jesus, was there, and he spoke up at the end, and Paul apparently was there, and, and it seems Peter was there. Like, the, the guys in your Bible stories were all there in this room and having this big discussion. And they're like, what do we tell the Gentiles? Because they thought Jesus came to earth to fulfill the Jewish faith, and now we continue to do these things, and this is how we continue to follow Jesus. And so they said, here's some things that we think you should do, like... Um, don't do uh, sexual immorality. Don't uh, drink blood. Uh, don't, and I know that seems really weird, but apparently relevant at the time. Uh, but one of the things they said is don't eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Which is, again, none of us are going to the local market and asking the butcher, was this sacrificed to any idols? <laughs> but you are looking at some other things. Is this organic? Were the cows taken care of? What was her name? Again, some of you are wondering why everyone's laughing. <laughs> and this is a, that's such a Portland thing, right? But it's, it's the opening skip from the show Portlandia. It's one of my favorites still. But uh, you have these concerns about the way that you got your food. In the culture around the year 50, they had some concerns about how they got their food because their view of the world was such that there were all these demons trying to get in you. 
and you needed to, then one of the primary ways they would get in you is by settling what goes into you, food. So the demons would settle on your food, and then you'd eat that food, and then you'd have demons in you. And things would go bad in your life because you ate food that hadn't been offered to a god. And so they would actually sacrifice meat to idols, like the god system that they had made, the god of this, the god of that, the god of rain, the god of the river, the god of the valley, the god of the mountain. They would sacrifice meat to them, have a barbecue, some meat would be left over, they would sell it in the marketplace, and then you would be able to eat this meat. The Jewish community, that was wildly unkosher. And so they weren't even concerned with that because they couldn't eat meat that was killed in a certain way. And so they didn't participate in that system. But then you had a bunch of Christians who were like Gentile Christians who would have been participating in that system. And now the church is telling them, don't eat that meat, but do this over here. So now you either have to be a vegetarian if you're a Christian, or you have to get your meat from the Jewish meat market. And so there's some suspicion there. Like, is this an economic move? Are they trying to help the Jewish meat community? (laughs) Which is not the case. What they're trying to do is help people live in a way that they're free. Because in their system, they believe that if I ate meat that was sacrificed to an idol, then it was better for me spiritually because the sacrifice to the idol would wipe or remove or block somehow the demons from settling on their food before they ate it. And so they're saying you don't need to eat the food that's been sacrificed to idols because you're actually protected from these imaginary demons that don't actually settle on your food and don't actually come in your mouth on your steak. None of you this week, I was in Portland and had the best burger of my life last night, and I not once thought, I hope there's no demons on this, right? I did think, I hope it's cooked right. I hope the cow was treated well. I hope she had a good life. I didn't think that at all, but I was in Portland, so I should have. (laughs) So this is the year, uh, around the year 48, 49, 50. Now, here's how this relates to James deciding that we should ordain women. This is the year 48, 49, 50. The council in Jerusalem writes this letter, do these things, do these things, do these things, don't eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. They give it to Paul and Barnabas, a couple other guys, to take and distribute. Take this letter all over this. Paul is kind of like, like there were leaders of the Jewish church, like Peter and James, who kind of stayed closer to Israel. Paul was kind of like the traveling guy. And so he was the leader out there. And everyone would kind of say, Paul's the guy who comes here, and so Paul's kind of our leader. And so Paul's kind of like the first uh, missionary leader in the church, the first leader in the church that wasn't the leader because of being given an office by everyone else. He was just kind of took initiative and people followed him. So around the year uh, 53, 54, 57-ish, it's hard to know, Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to read you chapter 8 and the end of chapter 10. And I'm going to read all the way through. And so if you want to seem like a biblical scholar, be shocked because Paul's going to disagree with the letter that he carried earlier. Paul is actually the only Christian leader that ever came out and said, no, actually, let's eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols. But then he comes out later and says, unless you have a problem with it, then we should all be vegetarians. <laughs> and so we are kind of like, whoa. Yeah. But Paul actually treats, uh, I'm going to get ahead of myself. Can we do that? And then I'm going to read the scripture and then you can go, oh, it all makes sense. 
Paul actually doesn't believe that the New Testament writers are creating a new religious law. In the Old Testament, there's two kinds of laws, moral law, ethical law, and ceremonial or religious law. And when Jesus comes and says he fulfills the law, it's talking about the ceremonial and religious law. This is why we don't go to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and offer sacrifices. This is why I wear clothes that's made out of two different kinds of colors, or two different kinds of material, you know, it's, it's, there are cere ceremonial laws. Yet, that doesn't mean in the Old Testament that the moral laws no longer apply. We're not allowed to murder, right? Like that's, we still would say, hey, murder, terrible idea, all right? 99.9% .9 of the time, terrible idea. Uh, and so we're, <laughs> I just want to put that in there. Um, but, but there, so there's different kinds of law. And when the New Testament was being created, and they would say things like in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, I think it's 13, uh, maybe 14 or 15, uh, where Paul actually talks about a uh, woman's role in the church, and people use that to uh, not ordain women in the church. Uh, we would actually not say that he was trying to make a religious rule. We would say he's doing something contextually. Uh, part of the sarcasm of that is four times in the New Testament, Paul commands, I say this all the time, he commands the brothers to greet each other. The brothers are the Christians because it's a family. He commands the brothers to greet each other with a holy kiss. You want to raise your hand if you've been kissed by another man this morning as you came to church? Like the welcome team came in and said, welcome, pulled you in, and it was like the most intimate greeting. No, right? And so the entire welcome team is living in sin. <laughs> if we're going to say, <laughs> that's probably true anyways, but uh, <laughs> y'all acting like you haven't sinned this week. Y'all acting like, oh man, yeah, they are heathens, but I certainly didn't swear at that guy going slow when it was not a school day on Friday. <laughs> Look at y'all, right? Like, I'm super righteous. I'm at church. Man, come on. If we think that Paul is saying, here's a new ceremonial religious law that all the Christians need to follow, then we should be doing everything that he says all the time, right? And there are denominations that do this stuff. Like, it's very, very exciting. Uh, I think they're wrong and not having any fun. But if we believe that he was giving us ways to live ethically and morally in the context that we live, it's much more challenging because now we have to look at the context where we live. Does it matter where our food comes from. And let's say this, does it matter where our Nikes come from? Or where our clothes come from? Because a lot of us are wearing clothes today that we bought because it was the cheapest. And the reason it's the cheapest is because it's made in factories that don't respect humans. But we're saving money so we can give more money to the church. Do you see how there's like this ethical knot that we're tying ourselves in? And so what we want is the Bible to give us, here's the rules that we follow so that we know that we're okay and we're not having to worry about those ethical knots. And what Paul does is say, before I said this, now I'm saying this. And who knows, maybe become a vegetarian. And it doesn't help us at all if we're looking for laws. But instead, Paul says, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and so you have everything that you need in order to live and minister in the culture that you live in. And we're like, well, I'd give up the Holy Spirit if I had a law. Right? Isn't that terrible? I know you'd never say that. But when we're looking for rules we can follow so that we know that we're right with God, that's exactly what's happening. It's we're saying the story of God and the Holy Spirit living in us is not sufficient for me to live here because I don't believe 
that God's made me smart enough or wise enough or put me in a community of people that are smart enough and wise enough to be able to know how to live in the time that we live. Now, let's read the Bible. I talked way too much before I read the Bible. Now, about, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, most of whom were not Jewish people, and they ate all the time meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Those were common sayings, like someone who knows something uh, was a common saying for the Corinthian people. Uh, so then, eating food sacrificed to idols. About eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. Like an idol is imaginary. It's something that's made. And we know that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, he's actually referring to demonic, like demonic and evil beings. Deuteronomy talks about there being demonic influences behind. Like the idol means nothing, right? Like they create Ra, the sun god, build a statue and worship. But behind that idol, there's a demon making that happen. Yet for us, uh, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came, and, through, and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, they are defiled. But food doesn't not bring us near to God. Some of you, that's the most offensive verse in here, right? But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do, speaking specifically of meat sacrificed to idols. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights do not become a stumbling block to the weak. Uh, for someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, so maybe you went out to eat and you ate at the place that they sacrificed the meat, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idol when their conscience tells them not to. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Then he, next week we're going to talk about chapter 9. We're going to skip to chapter 10. Paul says this, I have the right to do anything, you say, in quotes. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right uh, to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I take part in the meal... Uh, without thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink 
but whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, let me back up one step because this section is not going to be on the screen, but if you have the Bible app, you can go to event and it's in there. All right, <laughs> the version app. It begins with this. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. That actually refers to, uh, like, it, it does not refer to sin. So if you say, I have the right to do anything, and you're referring to sin, you don't have the right to sin. Is that, I just want to be clear about that. Because people will take this verse and say, well, I can do whatever I want. Well, yes, actually, you can do whatever you want, but that doesn't mean it's not a sin when you do the things that are sinful. What this is saying is, in these morally strange, morally gray areas, where you're trying to figure out what it means to live as a contextualized Christian and reach the community around you, in that context, you can do the thing that you feel in your conscience is the right thing. And at the end of the day, the person who is a follower of Jesus, the thing that they want, by definition, to be a follower of Jesus, the thing that you want is to know more of Jesus in such a way that others can come to know more of Jesus as well. You actually stop thinking about yourself and your rights. It's a dangerous thing for Christians to emphasize their rights and not emphasize their privileges or their responsibilities. When we start using those words, when we start saying, it's my right, it's my right, Paul actually would back up and say, well, it was my right to eat whatever meat I wanted, but I was willing to be a vegetarian. Like, willing to be a vegetarian. And I know for some of you, you are vegetarians, and you're like, that sounds like a biblical thing. But for some of us, there might be no greater sacrifice <laughs> than giving up the eating <laughs> of the things that we killed. Uh, I should say that more clear. Of the animals that we killed. We all possess this knowledge. We all possess, like Paul actually says, all of you Corinthians know what's going on, but some people are new to the faith in such a way that it's difficult for them to live into the context of your freedom. If Christianity is about freedom, then Paul is actually railing against, like Paul, the very letter from the council in Acts chapter 15, the council of Jerusalem, that he brought to the churches, he's railing against the leaders that were above him who said, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul breaks from that and says, in your context, if you don't feel like it's a sin, then it's not. Here's why we hate that. Because sometimes it doesn't feel like a sin, and it is. Right? We get that, if it feels good, do it, kind of philosophy of life. When Paul actually says in another place that the person he trusts least over what's right and what's wrong is himself. He's like, my own self, I do the things that I don't want to do. Isn't that more true to our lives? Like there are things that I want to do and things that I don't want to do, and there are results from those actions that I want to achieve, but I do the things that are opposite of the result that I'm hoping to achieve in my life. I spend money when I want to save. I go into debt when I want to uh, be free. I eat when I want to be skinny. I play video games when I want to be strong. <laughs> Those don't work. All of a sudden, you have this, I want this, 
but for some reason I'm not doing the things that it takes to get there. And Paul actually says, when you do those things, like it's not a matter of sin. Like it's not a sin to not achieve some personal goal that you have. It, like, it's not a sin to eat. It's not a sin to not work out. It, it's, it's not a, those aren't sins. Not a sin to spend money and not save money. That's not sinful. But not all of it is beneficial. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're looking at your life as this opportunity to experience God in such a way that others are able to experience God. So you're free. You're free in Christ to be free. Yet the exercising of your freedom shouldn't be a hindrance to someone else's freedom. The exercising of your freedom, I'm going to say it even stronger, shouldn't be a hindrance to someone else's following Jesus. I was in a church up in uh, Seattle on a youth group trip a hundred years ago, and uh, they did communion at this church, and they would go up and they had a couple, this church was really into like marriage and having kids, and so they would have couples at the front of all the, a huge church, front of all the uh, 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 aisles, front of all the aisles, and, and the one of the couples would hold this bowl that had pieces of bread in it. Uh, and then the other couple would hold uh, cups, right? And they would just, and they would have two cups. And you'd take a piece of bread and dip it and then eat it. It's the worst kind of communion, right? Soggy bread communion. But uh, so they, they had these two cups and it had a little label on it. And one said juice and one said wine. And I've got a group of like 10 youth group kids. We're in Seattle for a conference because... You know, they don't come here very often, like I said, so I get the kids to do these things so they can be around other Christian teenagers. And I'm thinking, that's hilarious, because I know when I'm 15, I know exactly which cup I'm dipping in. Like, exactly. Like, and, and maybe getting extra communion, right? Like, I ain't driving. I am getting sanctified. <laughs> Another problem the Corinthian church had. <laughs> So the kids are getting up and walking up, and I'm giggling on the inside because I know what, like, I know what I would do when I was a kid, right? And this kid goes through and comes back, and me and Heather are walking up, and literally, like, hands on us, there are two cups. Don't take the wrong one. <laughs> like this, and I'm like, what is, is one of them bad? Like, did you backwash, or did you drop something? Or, like, I don't know what's going on. But she had a rule in her mind, <laughs> This innocent kid had a rule in her mind that juice was good and wine was bad. But the rule in her mind kept her safe. And because she loved us, she wanted to keep us safe. And so I didn't take the wine. 15-year-old me would be like, screw that, I'm telling you no, but I didn't take the wine. And I'm not against wine. I don't particularly like wine. But I like living on the edge, so why not? <laughs> but I didn't take the wine because this kid would have had a complete mental breakdown in their ability to follow Jesus and trusting me about what I said about Jesus because for this kid, there was a law and her conscience kept her from being able to go past that wall. And so I took juice instead. You know what? My life is still awesome. <laughs> Like, I survived. I'm doing great. Later on, I, I drank wine, and it tasted just as bad as always. <laughs> but do, do you see the way I could have exercised my freedom? And I was free to do that. 
in Christ, I felt no, like I've studied the scripture, I understand what the scripture says, I understand what communion's all about, and I feel no conviction to not dip my bread in cup number two. But someone I was with who looks up to me felt that conviction, and a way I could serve that person is by giving up my right to freedom. See, I'm actually free, not just to do what I want, but I'm free from the compulsion to obey my own desires. This is the second step of freedom that actually matters more than the first. Free to do what you want is the most boring thing in the world. Free from your compulsions or free from your desires for self is actually what true freedom is, is actually the freedom that Christ talks about. A lot of times we talk about freedom in the church because to me that's what the gospel is, living in wide open spaces, freedom. But a lot of times we keep ourselves in those small spaces still. We might be more demonstrative or we might be more exuberant and we say, oh, I'm free. But real freedom is actually the freedom to not have it your way. It's actually the freedom to continue to experience the joy of Christ and not have your way. When you put your full faith and trust in Jesus, you change from a person who needs to satisfy the self to a person who is able to completely give themselves away. So you might see the most restrictive, conservative Christian, and you might think that they are really conservative or their conscience says something, but it might be that they're, they're not. They don't have a problem with it, but they're hanging out with these people or they're ministering to these people who have this expectation. And they think, if I were to cross that line, they wouldn't trust me. Or they wouldn't believe me. And maybe someday they'll grow, or maybe someday they'll change, or maybe someday they'll experience the ability to, to not imp like impart their consciences on other people. Maybe not. Like, I'm not... I'm not <laughs> there's a danger of saying, I'm enlightened, you're not. That's actually pride, which is a super awesome sin, and it's actually reversing. So there's a danger, because I hear it all the time, of saying, oh, someday you'll be as enlightened as me. And this happens in our culture, but it also happens in Christianity. Someday you'll change your mind and be as enlightened as me. But that's not what's going on in this. There's actually a freedom in saying, someday you might not need to need. Like, you may actually be free from the desire to be free. And you're able to just live in Christ as a person that lives in Christ. In Jesus, all the Christians are, are free, but they're not all equally mature. And so we have an opportunity to serve those who are still growing in their faith, to serve those who are about to grow in their faith by giving up our freedom for their sake, by giving up our rights, by not obeying our conscience so that they can be blessed. And in that process, if you're sad about losing your rights, that's actually a growth moment that God is putting on your life. Like, I have the right to do this, or I have the right to do that. This is what I want, and so this is what I'm going to get. And God's actually maybe trying to help you be free from that. Be free from your dreams, 
be free from your desires, be free from your needs, and just live into the opportunities that Christ puts in front of you. This is, for real, like 10 steps past what it is to be a Christian on day one. And some of you, like maybe Christianity is something you're exploring, it's a lot closer to day one, and you're like, what on earth are you talking about? This is some kind of new age craziness where we're free from desire, and we're going to do yoga in a hut later or something. Christianity actually is, I think, what true spirituality is. Now, people who say I'm spiritual and not religious, I think they're not free. Uh, people who would say, like, I, I'm into that, but Christianity is just rules and regulations, they've been too exposed to a Christianity that isn't taking the next step. And I don't think that's on us. Like, I, know, I don't think we need to feel bad about not being more spiritual. What I think is God wants you to experience freedom. And so this week, as you experience needs or you experience rights, like I have the right to go 40, not 20, maybe I give that up because someone else has no idea what the school calendar is. That's the stupidest example, right? But maybe I give up putting my bread in that cup of wine. And maybe actually I give up caring. Do you see that second step? And maybe I give up feeling awesome about myself because I'm sacrificing for someone else. I know I'm kind of the hero in that story and you're not supposed to do that, but I am awesome. <laughs> but someday, I'll be free from that. And we'll grow and continue to experience the increasing freedom of the Lord. Let me pray for us. All right, let's stand. I'm going to pray that blessing over us. God, in this room are all people that you love all people that you desire ultimate freedom for, all people that you desire to live in a complete freedom from the desires of this world, from the pressures of, of life, from the complications in our work, in our relationships, in our school, all people that you love and you desire freedom for, and yet we hold, we hold on to things. We hold on to things in the strangest way, God, and so I pray that you would free us from that need for controlling, for holding, for managing on our own and allow us to live into the wide open spaces that you have for us. Allow us to live into who you really are. God, cause us to be free, not free so that we can do what we want because we know we could do what we want, but free to be a benefit to others and not needing to be a benefit to ourselves, God, by your grace we pray this in your name. Together we say, amen.